0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is someone very special, Juliana Vida. She is Chief Technical Advisor to Splunk. So this should be a bit of a treat for most of us, because I think most of us will tend to see technology companies as providing tech. But Juliana and I are going to discuss why that's a mistake. Juliana, would you mind giving us a quick introduction to who you are and your journey to get to where you are?
1: Certainly, thank you Marcus. Happy to be here with you today. I am the Chief Technical Advisor for Splunk specifically for the public sector. I come from a full military career as an operator in the US Navy. First, I drove ships for about five years and then I switched to flying helicopters for about 12 years. And I pivoted into IT and technology only about 12 years ago when I was assigned to the Navy Chief Information Officer's staff, which is out of the Pentagon. And there I I learned and like I said, did a career pivot and ultimately became the Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Navy. And I bring that military and government experience and that viewpoint to my role here at Splunk. I'm in a thought leadership function. I help talk to leaders, customers, prospects, the public, across the public sector about the mission value of the Splunk data platform. I help leaders see the value of Splunk to all aspects of their organization and their mission. And it's definitely a people and relationship role, less emphasis on the technical, more emphasis on the advisor.
0: Excellent. So you spent a few years at Gartner as well. What sort of insights do you get by looking from the research perspective? into the mechanics and the workings of the, you know, the technology marketplace.
1: Yes. The, my, my years at Gartner were actually crucial to what I do now at Splunk because I did start to, I supported specifically their executive programs business. And at that part of the business supports their highest tier customers who are chief information officers, CISOs, chief digital officers, and now they're expanding. But when I was there, our focus was mostly on the CIO level and through reading the research there i started to really get a sense of the tie in between human psychology and behavior and and leadership and culture and how those need to be intertwined with the pure technology the tools the the software to really drive business results gartner has super smart analysts and thinkers and working with them and engaging with them elevated my ability to take what I knew from a policy slant when I was working for the CIO in the Navy and make it real to leaders today, You know, thinking about their culture and how they build teams and how they can be more innovative and drive, drive innovation in their organization. So Gartner was a, a great leap pad for me to go from the government to Splunk.
0: Excellent, I'm so delighted you said that because I have a real bee in my bonnet about technology companies selling technology. I always equate it to showing photos of your ugly children to strangers. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, I want this piece of software or that piece of hardware. There's always a reason behind it. And if you don't understand the mission, the investment in IT is intended to deliver, then as a salesperson, first of all, you're creating objections in the prospect's mind. Chances are you're also going to create cost in their mind rather than value. And I'd love to explore that in a little bit more detail. So tell me this, because you've touched on my particular favorite topics around psychology and culture. What mistakes do you see people making? What are the questions that you see people asking that they probably shouldn't be asking because they're actually looking at the wrong end of the problem?
1: (laughs) It's funny that you ask me those questions right after making your comment about cost versus value, because I would say of the four common questions I hear about IT and tech, two of them are about cost. Mm -hmm. Two of them are I almost always hear, yeah, but how can you help me cut my costs? <laughs> or why does IT cost so much? I can't tell you the, the number of times I hear those two particular questions. And when I hear them, I think I- I'm already behind the eight ball. I-, I need to get ahead of this person who thinks about IT in terms of a cost center still, yeah. even though the world has evolved. And now, of course, IT is, is a uh, mission enabler across the business. And I quickly want to pivot that to a value conversation. It's not about the price you pay, it's about the value that you get. so those are those are two common questions, I think that start off a conversation with especially a senior leader in very much the wrong direction. So then I try to steer it in a different direction about well, what, what do you really want as an outcome for your organization and your what do you want your mission and objective to be? The third one, Specifically to, because I mentioned I support the public sector at Splunk, I often hear questions about how can IT or technology help me compensate for my challenges in recruiting and hiring people? You know, and going a little bit further, the government can't pay what the salaries that private industry companies can pay. But I think government leaders, when they focus on that, they're missing the bigger picture of why people go to work for the government in the first place. And that is generally because they have a heart for public service, or they truly want to give back. Not everyone is motivated by a high pay- paycheck. Some people are, but people are generally motivated by, and I didn't make this up, but it, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. They want to do work that gives them decision-making authority. They want to do work that makes them feel good. and and. Particularly in the government, leaders are often stuck on the, I can't pay people a lot of money. So they want to talk about how technology can help them with that. And that allows me to shift the conversation to what truly motivates people. And then I can get them talking about the culture and people's intrinsic, how they find value in their life and those kinds of things. And the fourth question always is, yeah, I get it. Cloud technology, cloud is great, or, you know, all these Innovative technologies, but but what about security? People seem to be so stuck on the fact that they just want to question. But is your is your product secure? Can it meet my cybersecurity needs? And those are important questions, but they're not the ones that should be getting in the way of how technology can help. Frankly, it's an easy out for people who don't want to talk about your product or your tool or your technology to say, yeah, but what about security? And they they kind of want to turn the conversation in a different direction. and they're, It's just not the right focus, in my opinion. Especially speaking for Splunk, we are such a leader in security. Like to ask us about, well, what can Splunk do for my cybersecurity is like asking Porsche, yeah, but does the car feel good when I drive it?
0: It raises the question then, if they are asking that, when the meeting was set up, was there enough proper qualification about the motive behind it? and the intent for the outcome doesn't it
1: absolutely again you're reading my mind i know that the people on the ground the, the sales teams they're out they do discovery they do research but often i find they're probably researching the wrong things they're they're spending too much time looking at the buying center portion and where the, where the budget might be, which is important. You, you don't want to waste anybody's time having a conversation where there's no budget. I, I get that, but there isn't often enough discovery about the person they're talking to, where they come from, maybe just a quick biopic of what their history is. Like me, often Marcus, um, I'm brought in to talk to our new sales hires as they're getting their initial enablement and their onboarding training. And the reason that Splunk brings me in to talk to these people is because I come from a very different background and I ended up being a deputy CIO. I ended up being someone that our Splunk salespeople might have been across the table from, but they might not know that I don't come from, I didn't come from a technology background. I don't have a degree in computer science or a master's in information technology. I was a warfighter. And that gives me a completely different perspective on how I can use technology today. So I try to, encourage the salespeople to go dig into those details, not spend all their time doing it, but it's so important to know the person and what their motivations are and why they landed in the seat that they're in. I think often our sales teams assume that senior, especially senior level IT customers have always been in IT and they know everything about software and and technology. And that is often not the case. you know. These days, CIOs are more from the business. They're more business and operational leaders put into a CIO role than they were maybe five or 10 years ago. So you're absolutely right. I think the discovery is not always exactly what it needs to be. And that unfortunately sets the salesperson up for the wrong kind of conversation, or me for that matter, When when they bring me in to have, let's have an executive level conversation. There's a lot of backtracking that I feel needs to be done because that that human element of discovery wasn't, wasn't already done.
0: I think one of the other threats that that creates for you going in is at some point, if that isn't addressed, then you're going to be sent into Siberia somewhere in the <laughs> IT department and yep. you're going to struggle to get out of it. What I see happen very often because IT salespeople spend their time talking about the technology and thinking that people buy IT because they want IT is you end up in a conversation with influencers, recommenders, specifiers, technical buyers, even users. And those are valuable conversations, but it's very difficult to climb your way back up out of there unless you've created the conditions for having a conversation that create an emotional willingness and an emotional attachment from the senior executives as to why they would even consider investing. Because of the 123 things on their pile of decisions that they have to make about spending money, if you haven't managed to get to the top two or three, chances are you're not going to be spoken about until the next session or the session after that, if ever at all. And so the challenge here, I think, is that salespeople really need to understand that you're selling to people. And people buy for their reasons, not your reasons. They don't buy for the reasons you even suspect. I had a client who was working with in Germany and it was an SAP house and he was working for Oracle and the CTO bought module from Oracle because he wanted to improve his CV because he didn't have an Oracle project on it. I've had a client's buy from me because they wanted to pay for IVF treatment. I had someone else (laughs) because they had to pay for a vet's bill. I had someone else because she ran out of wall space for her modern art collection and wanted to knock the the wall through in the apartment next door so that she could increase, you know, she could carry on putting her paintings up. (laughs) People don't buy for the reasons that you expect. I mean, school fees. I cannot tell you the number of times people have bought from me because they wanted me as an insurance policy so they could keep paying for school fees. People are not rational. So let's talk about that for a moment. Given that we know that all decisions, you can't get away from 300 million years of evolutionary hardwiring, and the emotion center and the decision-making centers in the brain are adjacent to one another, and if your emotional center is damaged, then you cannot make a decision. So why is it that still, in this day and age, when we have all the neuroscience, we have all the psychology that's out there, that salespeople still insist on talking features and benefits instead of focusing on the emotional journey that the customer needs to go through to become willing and able to spend the money. And if they aren't able to spend the money, that they're willing to go and find it and fight for it.
1: <laughs> wow. Marcus, I think you and I are related somehow. We go back because as you're talking, I'm, just, I'm my neck is going to break as I nod up and down. Honestly, I, I think we have to be fair and, and also look at the element of people behave the way that they're compensated, you know, in in a business. They only have so much time in the day. And it is a very, it's a much easier thing to look at the slick sheet, the marketing slick sheet on the product and talk about the bullet points that are there. Because you only have limited time with the customer and you need to sell if if you're a salesperson, that is how you are compensated. That is how you feed your family. That's how you, to your point, that's how you put your kids through college and put art on the wall and all those things. And so I think given the choice, reps tend to go with, got to sell the product because that's how I make the money. And if and if I have time to get to all that human-y, neuroscience-y behavior stuff, I will. It's not because they don't want to. I think they're just time limited and it's, it's easier than digging in and building relationships. I mean, look at just human relationships in general and all the relationships that go sour, even when people want, to have a good relationship with the other person. You know, marriages, you want to love that person, but it becomes very difficult to manage a relationship in a lot of times, even though you're personally invested, and it falls apart. So when you put that into a sales context, it's not hard for me to imagine that if I were on the ground trying to make money in sales, I would probably migrate towards the easier, talk about the product, talk about the tool, than the build the relationship part. It's not a get out of jail free card. I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of, of the sales teams when I interact with them. So do you do, I, do am I'm I
0: challenging?
1: No, please do.
0: Okay. Only 12% of first meetings result in a second meeting globally. 12%, one in eight. Now, if you're gonna waste seven out of eight of the opportunities because You're not focusing on the thing that actually drives the decision to buy. That's a false economy. So my question then, and this is going to hopefully make a few managers and senior sales leaders squirm, is (laughs) why on God's earth do managers allow their salespeople not to have those conversations? And why are they not training them? Why are they not coaching them on that? Because that, to me, smacks of utter wastefulness
1: again I agree with you and and back to um, you know how we do it at Splunk I think that's why they created the role that that I'm in that's why I have the function to come in and talk to the sales reps and be, be in the meetings with you know, when they do get the second meeting or the third meeting especially with the senior level or the executive level customers they're learning from me you know they, they listen to how I engage with the customer how we prep ahead of time we have you know, the internal prep call, the kinds of questions that I'm asking, I think that does fit the bill of what you just mentioned, Marcus, in terms of how managers are training their reps to look at the human element. Now, the problem there, of course, is one person isn't scalable, you know. And so my my goal is to not give the salespeople the fish, but teach them how to fish, you know, the old adage. Yeah. And we're getting there. We're getting there at Splunk. But I think the the creation of a role like mine, the incorporation of people that Aren't there to sell the product, but are there to help build the relationship? I think that's a good a, a step in the right direction, and I'm glad you know. I'm glad we're doing that. It's one.
0: I'm delighted that you guys are, but the majority of tech companies aren't. So, what advice would you give to technology companies that are in maybe the ten to fifty million mark? They're just about to hit the curve of the hockey stick, and they're just starting to scale. What advice mm-hmm. would you give to them? and their leaders and their managers in terms of the culture that they need to create, the focus on the customer and partners to ensure that they're getting the right kind of conversations done in the right way with the right people at the right time.
1: Right. My advice would be to ensure... This kind of ties to a diversity and inclusion conversation, but not in the way you might No, think.
0: no, no. Go, go on, because I'm... Okay.
1: <laughs> it, you, you truly have to avoid the temptation to... Con- to only have sales leaders and sales engineering leaders in your senior level, you know, at, at senior Absolutely. levels in the company,
0: couldn't agree more. Uh,
1: my boss, the the man who hired me, told me later after I went through the process <sighs> that he specifically said he did not want someone internal from Splunk who had done really well in in, in field sales or in engineering because he recognized that. There's a role and there's a function for for successful sales leaders, but bringing in a skill of building relationships and and have executive sponsorship, for example, that doesn't necessarily come from the field and it doesn't come from the engineering side. And so let's bring in somebody who doesn't have that background, intentionally did that and it's working. And I would suggest that that's what other companies need to do. They've got to look outside for people that do not necessarily come from a full career of software sales, for example, or even have an engineering background because we just, we just think differently and engage with people differently.
0: This is really interesting, and there are some phenomenal examples out there. So, for example, UiPath as a business does precisely that. They have a very diverse group of people involved as part of the sales battalion, if you like. Mm-hmm. And have you read uh, Matthew Syed's book, Rebel Ideas? I have not. So Rebel Ideas is a book that uh, its premise is that you need diversity. You need inclusiveness because a Japanese audience looking at a fish tank will describe the ambience of the tank. They'll describe the, uh, the gravel, the bubbles, the seaweed. An American audience will describe the fish. And if you don't have both, then you don't get the whole picture. David Epstein wrote a phenomenal book called Range, and his premise is that people who come from a generalist background, operating in a narrow niche where creative, creativity is key, will outperform specialists. And when you combine mm-hmm. those two, and another fabulous book that fits really beautifully in this concept is Loon Shots by Safi Bakal. And uh, he talks about how companies start out entrepreneurial and creative and risk-taking. And there comes a point where they tip into bureaucracy and where it's safer to knock down new ideas. When I look at out systems, outreach, I look at eight by eight, these companies are scaling at massive rates, at hundreds or thousands of percents per annum. And what all of them have as a red thread running through them is that they bring in a diverse range of people who challenge and they fight. They Mm -hmm. fight like crazy. They disagree because they come from different perspectives and they look at things through the eyes of the customer, through the eyes of the partner. And a net result of that is that they end up having fantastic proposition by the time they get to speak to the customer because they've rehearsed, they've planned, they have pre-call planning sessions, have red teams and white teams, where the white team has to defend the opportunity. The red team attacks it and breaks it apart. So you end up, by the time you're in front of the customer, having lived all the objections, worked out how you're going to get ahead of them. So mm-hmm. what are you guys doing in Splunk to do stuff like that?
1: Well, like I mentioned, this, this particular role, you know, bringing in people to be chief technical advisors is one of them. But I will say, honestly, because of our corporate values, because Splunk, even though we we are not a startup people think we are, but we we've been around for eighteen years. We still are very much a fun, open, innovative company and it and it shines through in the culture and I think that that can be really hard to do when a lot of other big companies are very legacy minded in terms of their business and you know call them buttoned up, not anymore because no one's wearing buttoned up shirts. While we're all on Zoom calls, but you know what I mean—the legacy companies that have been around forever. Splunk is not like that, and and it shows in everything that we do, in our rebranding, in our colorful, you know, co- our kooky T-shirts, and and some of the things. That, and I think that's really important because as as a company, it drives this constant feeling of we have to be different and creative, and and fun, and speak out. And I I really think that that's important. It sounds like kind of simple, but most companies don't do that. You know, they just become very corporatized. And Splunk has not become corporatized at the detriment of driving innovation and embracing people who do speak out with different voices and, and who do stand up for what they believe and go to the mat with when there's nine, 10 people in the meeting and I'm the only voice saying, no, I don't, I don't think that that's right. They encourage that. I think that's really, that's really important. How do you recruit for that? <laughs> Marcus, you got me. I do not know. Uh, honestly, I don't know. Fair enough. <laughs>
0: okay, I, I won't press you on it because I, 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 I agree. I think that's really important. Uh,
1: Actually, are... I do have a thought on that. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm going to tout LinkedIn. So I, I have really started to use that as a platform to learn new ideas from people, challenge them. And I think that that's an underused platform that when we really look at what people are posting, because let's be honest, most of us, if we're gonna put something out there that's crazy town, we we, we tend to think about it for a few minutes before we hit send or we hit post. And so when someone does post something, You know that they mean it, probably. Yeah, probably. It's not like Facebook where people are just, you know, or Instagram or or the others where it's kind of off the top of your head. It's a little bit more thoughtful. And I think that if we really look at what people are sharing, what they're posting, you get a real sense of who a person is—not on their resume, not because you know they've had whatever a sales career, they've had a military career, but who they really are and how they present themselves to the public. That I think is an underused platform that people should pay more attention to when they're looking to hire. Again, not just looking down their list of, I had this job and I had this job and I had this job, but what kinds of things do they comment on? How do they present themselves to the public? And um, because that's their brand and and people are putting their brand out there voluntarily and for free. And so I think that would be one way that you could really look for people who question, who throw out different ideas when the rest of the group is saying one thing. So that's, That's one, but I'm not a recruiter. So I haven't figured out the rest of it, Marcus.
0: Well, that's all right. I agree with you. I think LinkedIn is an area that people in sales, definitely, and also in technical roles. I think it's a perfect opportunity for you to develop your personal brand. And in this day and age, if you are not able to operate on LinkedIn effectively, you're becoming extinct. And I've worked very hard to develop my personal brand on there. And it's created incredible opportunities, but I'm also ex- incredibly opinionated and I don't mind getting into a fight with people because I think it's really important that we challenge. Now, from a recruitment perspective, if you are not using LinkedIn to develop your personal brand, then I think you are missing a massive trick. Your, your LinkedIn profile should not be a resume or a CV. It needs to talk about your customer. It needs to talk about the kind of solutions that you uh, deliver, uh, the value that you bring. And you make your customer the hero. And I I think one thing that Splunk has done very well historically is that you made your customer wildly successful. Mm -hmm. And then they scream from the rafters that you'd have to use Splunk. That's certainly been something that historically that you guys have been very good at. Moving on a little bit, What are the three questions that people should ask you, but they never do?
1: (laughs) So it all ties into the conversation we've been having. uh, And one of them is how can I build relationships that matter so I can influence other people? Hmm. Back to the people. They, They don't ask about that. How do I actually learn more about people? Or, well, that's it. How do I build relationships that matter? The other one we already talked about is, Asking questions about, yes, Mister Customer, yes, Mister Customer, I'm here to talk to you about, you know, my product. But could you could you tell me about yourself? You know, what what drives you? Why well, how did you get here? I almost never hear that question asked. I mean, that's very simplistic. You wouldn't ask it that way. But digging into who the person is, not necessarily just what job they're in, or
0: you need to be interested, not interesting.
1: Yeah, it's a <laughs> exactly. Flirt.
0: Selling is like the seduction process, but the syntax, the the system that they operate is attract, make comfortable, seduce, push away, and have the other person surrender. And that way you never get an injunction or a restraining order. (laughs) Now, sales is a seduction process. Traction is your marketing, your content, your outreach, your referrals. Making comfortable is agreeing upfront what you're going to, why you're there, and what you're both trying to achieve. It's creating an adult-to-adult conversation. It's building bonding, rapport, making sure that they're comfortable with you, human being to human being. Too often, salespeople try and dip their hand in your pocket, or they try and show photos of the ugly kids. Until they understand why uh, you might be beneficial to them, and that you understand them, what they're trying to achieve, they're not going to buy from you. You'll just be commoditized. Yeah. And then you have to take them through that process where you understand how they're going to, whether they're going to commit and how they're going to commit, what resources, what access you need to have, the financials, the times and timing. You know, all of this is part of the budgeting process, but most people's idea of a budget question is, Juliana, have you got a budget set aside for this? How much? <laughs> and that's not a budget discovery. Uh, right. They don't bother to find out about the decision-making process. And so you end up in think it overs, in stalls, in negotiations. Mm -hmm. All of those are created by bad salesmanship. Yeah. You had a third uh, unasked question. Sorry.
1: I do. A third unasked question. And this is for all of us. This is, I try to think, to ask myself this question anytime I'm hesitating. And that is, what would I do if I had no fear? Whether that's going after a job or um, connecting with someone whose podcast I might want to be on or going after my next career goal or talking with a couple, whatever whatever it is. It could be something in your household, you know, talking to your spouse about something. Fear holds us back from so many things. And it's, it could be fear of embarrassment. It could be fear of getting fired or fear of, you know, for me, I'm a, retired military pilot. You know, we have pretty healthy egos. So I have often I have a fear of just looking like I don't have all the answers or I'm not that cool. You know, that's that's my fear. So the question to ask is, but what if I had no fear? And oh my gosh, you can open up your mind to so many new ways of thinking of how you engage people. For sales, for example, because that's what this is about. You know, if I wasn't afraid of the CIO slamming the door in my face because they're so important and I'm not I could go in from a position of power and and credibility and say, you really need to talk to me. I, I I can help you meet your mission. I heard you speak last week or testify in front of Congress, and I know this is important to you, and here's how I can help you. But you have to overcome that fear of, oh, but what if they slam the door in my face? Or what if they tell me they already know that? So fear. What would I do if I had no fear?
0: Well, you've touched on something which is very near and dear to my heart, which is ego. Ego is the enemy. And Mm -hmm. there is a beautiful, elegantly simple model called the drama triangle developed by a guy (laughs) called Stephen Cartman. Yes. And you have the victim, the persecutor and the rescuer. And what happens is people just wander around that triangle and they swap positions and you end up in, I mean, you can have a fight with someone without actually including them in the fight. I remember years ago, my wife in bed on a Friday night said, I'm going to decorate the living room tomorrow. And in my family, I was taught that DIY stands for don't involve yourself. So I kissed (laughs) her goodnight and went to sleep. And the following day, I'd I'd, I'd had a busy week, and I'd done four days uh, straight training, and I was tired. And so my plan was to lie in bed with a few cans of beer, some chocolate, and watch the cookery programs, and basically (laughs) veg out for the weekend. But at 11.36, I sort of went downstairs, and I said, do you want some help? And my wife said, only if you want to. Now, in my marriage, I thought, only if you want to means go to the garage, get the bucket and brushes and come in and help. So <laughs> off I went. And as I walked to the garage, a little voice in my head said, how the hell did she rope me into this? <laughs> and then I got there and I was just ripping off little pieces of wallpaper and there was a cloud, thunder, lightning, rain. And I said, I'll show her. Uh, anyway. And after about eight or nine minutes, my wife looked across and said, sweetheart, you don't seem fully engaged in this activity. Is something wrong. And I said, well, you know, I had a hard week. And so I went straight into the victim voice again. And um, she said, you know, I know that you've had a hard week. And when I said only if you want to, I meant only if you want to. I thought it would be nice to spend some time doing something together. So I felt about an inch tall. um, and. I managed to have this entire fight with my wife without actually including her. Now, you talk about <laughs> fear, and um, all the time, salespeople have this noise in their head. I, I put your biggest, five biggest competitors are fear, apathy, ignorance, denial, and ego. And ego is the worst of them, because mm-hmm. ego encompasses all those others. And the minute you take a victim, a persecutor, or a rescuer position, your ego has been hooked. And uh, ego thrives on drama. So let's take it to that. How do you make sure that you prevent yourself from getting sucked into the drama? Because I'd be really interested in how you did that because you're a combat veteran. Yeah. How do you prevent yourself from uh, allowing your amygdala to get hijacked, your limbic system to uh, take over, and then you just go into that panic reactive mode?
1: Well... Back in the day, you know, if I were, if you're talking about a situation like literally in the cockpit, you know, there are different ways to kind of avoid getting sucked into the fog of the war, if you will, and, and making bad decisions. But I think you mean like now. How do I avoid that now? And honestly, I try to read a lot. I try to, you know, read the the psychology books and the and the leadership books. But I also keep a very small group of people that I go to to bounce ideas off of and that we're very honest with each other. And let's say let's say something happens today, and I, I get into some kind of heated email debate with a colleague, which I don't want to do, but maybe, maybe it happens. I would turn to one of those, and I mean like three. I have three people that I go to. And I would say, huh, this is what's happening. I take myself out of the drama with the other person, and I go to outsiders, and I explain to them what's going on. And they know me. You know, they know what drives me. They know how I operate and what triggers me. And I I just I put it on them for a moment and I asked them to give me advice. And often they just help me slow down, you know, take a breath, just physically remove myself from the drama and be outside of it. And I honestly do that all the time. In in fact, as you were talking about the drama triangle, I remember going through a, a formal coaching program and that model was one of the things that we used. And one of the things we learned was, literally pick yourself up out of the chair and move into a different chair and give yourself a visual, a different visual look at, at the other person. And you'll automatically like change your perspective. So I do that. I lean on people to I lean on friends and uh, mentors, I guess you would call them to kind of talk me off the ceiling mm-hmm. uh, because I'm also Italian American and I tend to get pretty emotional and pretty spun up pretty quickly. So I need other people to say, hold on, <laughs> And uh, that, that's my remedy.
0: You haven't been talking with your hands anywhere near enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so again, Please. let's go back into the military. I mean, how important was it that you drilled and drilled and drilled and practiced and repeated and you oh. put yourself under pressure <laughs> so that when yeah. the pressure was really on, then you could think straight?
1: Absolutely. Super, super important. And, you know, the beauty of having been a helicopter pilot is that and I used to fly, uh, I started out flying one, in one of the older airframes that the Navy then stopped flying because it was so old. But the beauty of flying is that every time you get in that thing, it's like a car, but really to more of an extent, bad things can happen. Like from the start, fires, leaks, you know, you get called on a rescue to go rescue somebody who's drowning off the coast of, of San Diego or whatever, every single time. So you're constantly in this mindset of, okay, better know my procedures, like the back of my hand. And we would, uh, because when the stuff goes down, um, I need to have that muscle memory. And that was so important from day one. It was, it was, um, you know, repetition, memorization, holding each other accountable. Like if, if we, for example, simulated an engine fire while we're flying, you know, we're still flying and there's real stuff to be considered, but, but we would say ahead of time, we're going to practice. There's an engine fire and the right seat pilot would have to do all the actual pulling of circuit breakers or whatever it was, but the right seat pilot would make sure that that person was doing it exactly right. Like, no, you said this word, but you should have said that word you pulled this circuit breaker first. And you should have pulled that one. holding each other accountable was so important because like you said, when, when there actually was an engine fire, There's no time to be thinking about, oh, wait, what was that first step again? And then compartmentalizing everything else, you know, compartmentalizing how scared I am, how frustrated I am, how mad I am, that kind of stuff. So it was super cool.
0: So thank you for that. So bringing this into the context of selling, how critical is planning, rehearsal, and accountability for salespeople?
1: (laughs) Well, I I think we kind of answered it without answering it. it is what your mind and your body have to rely on when the meeting doesn't go the right way. When, or someone enters the room that you weren't expecting, or uh, actually this happened to us recently. We, we, we got in to see very senior leadership in the Pentagon, the Splunk team did, and we were expecting that, you know, it was a, a very senior level CIO person. And as we walked in the room, we realized that an undersecretary had also joined, an undersecretary from from the agency, which is a big deal. And it could have caught us off guard, but we had prepared. You know, we had, who's going to say what? Who has what slide? You know, at what point is Juliana going to introduce Mike? You know, that kind of thing. And that was helpful because it could have put us in the tizzy. Not that we're not professionals, but that's just an example of, you don't know what's going to happen when you open the door. So preparing your talk track, knowing what you're comfortable with, knowing what you're not comfortable with and having the other, your other teammate be prepared are so critical because, you, like we said earlier, you may only have one shot. That may be your only meeting and it may be the only engine fire you ever have to put out. So you better do it right.
0: Absolutely. So that then brings me to the next piece around team selling. So when you are selling as a team, how do you go about making sure that everybody understands their roles and what do you do to ensure that when someone is going off piste that you can bring them back on track because one wrong word the timing or a technical person just suddenly thinking oh i just got to give this information that can kill the sale how do you make sure that that's taken care of
1: Well, you know, preparation in general. So let's have one or two prep meetings ahead of time and outline specifically who's going to say what, who's going to cover what slide, at what point do we bring in the tech. But then also having a very honest, be very honest. If anybody in that group, in that internal planning call, doesn't understand or doesn't realize or has a nagging question in their head, they've got to answer it. Because it could be that one, and for example, what I mean by that is, we have this beautiful slide deck and it's all slicked up and marketing has looked at it and it's, and it's all, and it's all great. But if we don't identify who in the sales team or in the the group sales team is going to address the most senior person in the room, which is really important in some organizations like the department of defense, if we don't identify specifically who that person is, then when we're put on the stage, you know, we could look like a bunch of buffoons that didn't know who, you know, who we were were going to be in front of. So my point is in the prep calls, everyone has to ask all the questions that they have. And that relies on trust. We have to believe that our partner, our teammates are there to help each other. I think intrinsically we know that, but we have to say those words, like we're here to help each other. We're, we're a team. And that's on each one of us. Honestly, that's each person has to be honest on if they walk out of that prep call and have any questions, you better get them answered before you go into the room. And, um,
0: what about the debrief? because I know in the military you prep, <laughs> then you have a briefing then yeah. uh, you do the actions you are monitor then you come out and you debrief so talk to me about the debriefing process
1: well, here's what I'll say about the debriefing I, I think this is an area where we can do better Marcus I, I think <laughs> that <laughs> let's, let's just say that frankly that's all often the first thing to fall off we we talk in the pre often in the calls in the meetings I've been in involved in, we'd say, yep, we, we have to do lessons learned and what worked well and what didn't. And I would say 20% of the time we actually do that. And that's something we definitely need to work on. We actually had, last year when I joined Splunk, we had our big annual uh, Gov Summit. It's like our big user conference, but for our, our public sector customers. And we had a fantastic speaker come. She was one of the first female Navy F-14 pilots, Tomcat pilots, and she talked about leadership and, and uh, bold leadership. And she again and again emphasized the, necess- the necessity for debriefing because from her military background. And everyone was saying, like, yeah, yeah, so important, so important. But, you know, we don't do it as much as we should. And it's so critical because the more time you wait, the more you forget. You don't remember what you said yesterday or what, how how your adrenaline was pumping or how mad you were at that person for saying what they said. That's an area for improvement, Marcus.
0: Absolutely. I mean, what what we teach our clients is that you come out, you do a written post-call debrief, and then within 20 minutes, you're having a verbal post-call debrief. And you need to identify what new information was learned, what red flags and potential problems have been uncovered, what questions or topics you need to address for the next contact. Evaluate where you could improve what went well, what action steps need to be taken, who does what by when, what intended results you're looking for. And then use that to populate your pre-call plan for the next call. And that has to be done when it's fresh. Because if you don't do that, then you miss massive opportunities. And it's a huge mistake. I see so many technical companies make. I mean, across the board, but tech companies in particular. And that's where that culture of winging it comes back in. And the emphasis needs to go onto planning and preparation. Because when you're selling at the level you guys are, you're effectively in the cat herding business. And there are so many moving parts and things can go wrong at any different level. Things can change. And if you haven't done the planning, there's the old military maxim, which is, it's not the plan that matters, it's the plan because it never survives contact with the enemy. That's right, that's right. And Carl von Clausewitz. every salesperson out there needs to read On War by Carl Carl von Clausewitz. If you're not reading that, Sun Tzu, another one. Um, Because if you don't understand that in the heat of the sale that things will go wrong and you haven't planned for contingencies, you are going to come unstuck.
1: Yeah, that's great. And like going back to the military, as you said, and specifically for aviation, the debrief wasn't just a nice thing to have. It was in the schedule. It was, that is part of the mission. And you don't skip that. You don't know, I'm going to go eat pizza and then come back a half hour later. It was, you get out of the aircraft, you put your gear away you sit down and you debrief right now. You actually just gave me an idea. And I think I'm going to incorporate into uh, meetings in the future and scheduling that time because if, if it ain't an outlook, it ain't happening.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, again, time blocking, another much underused skill. If you time block your calendar and it's in there and it's non-negotiable, like coaching should be incidentally, mm-hmm. because the thing that I've always flabbergasted by is a number of managers who say, oh, I don't have time to coach. Well, you don't have time to coach because you're not damn well coaching. Post-school debriefs, absolutely critical. We're coming to the top of the hour. This has been amazingly insightful. So I'd be delighted if you have come back uh, for you. a second round. Tell me something. What are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think people should really pay heed to?
1: Okay. I'll be, I'll be brief. I love Harvard Business, business Review. I read articles about all different kinds of things, leadership topics and culture, and a lot of it relates to technology these days. Books, this may rub some people the wrong way, but there is a book called Brotopia by Emily Chang. Emily Chang is the, um, the host of Bloomberg Technology. She's a legitimate, you know, has a technology background. And she wrote a book about a year and a half ago uh, exposing the bro culture of Silicon Valley. And I think it's important because actually kind of now, what we're experiencing in the, in the United States with, with our war on racism, which is real and hard to talk about. She talks about this culture in Silicon Valley of the bros and the startups and all of that. It's, it's a hard topic. Not everyone wants to listen to or learn about, but I think specifically those in everyone in technology, men, women, everyone need to kind of see some of these dirty stories or dirty secrets of what has gone on in the past. And then two other books. One of them is The Ride of a Lifetime by Robert Iger. He was most recently the CEO of Disney, and he remains in a in a senior role there, just not specifically CEO. It's a fantastic book about his career, but also how Disney became what it is. There are a lot of leadership issues in there, culture, people type issues, and lessons about working with competitors. In his case, it was Steve Jobs and how. That relationship changed over time, and then the fourth book I always go into this also maybe controversial, but that's Lean In for Lean In by Cheryl Sandberg, especially for women, but especially for people um, just trying to figure out how to make a difference in their career. And so uh, those are my suggestions.
0: You mentioned uh, a lady when we were prepping Dory Clark. Tell me a little bit about her book.
1: Yes, Dory Clark wrote a. She's written several books, but her book entitled Reinventing You, Y-O-U, is the book that helped me change my career trajectory when I was deciding whether to leave the federal government. It is, it's is—it's about personal branding. It's about maybe looking at the assumptions you've made about yourself in the past and what you are and aren't good at and helping to really get clarity on what you are good at and what you should be looking at in a future career or a future Endeavor. She's also written Entrepreneurial You. She's written several other books, but she is a fantastic thinker and teacher and coach and mentor. And I highly recommend people go out and and dig into her content.
0: Fantastic recommendation. Thank you. Okay, slightly blunt question. You've got a golden ticket, and you could go back and advise the idiot Juliana, age 23, uh, and you could whisper in her ear what choice bit of wisdom would you whisper in her ear?
1: I would say, be more confident. When people tell you you're good at something, believe them and leverage that strength. Don't spend so much time wondering, yeah, but what about the time I didn't do it right? Or, oh, are you sure? I wasted years with that negative self-talk. And I wish I hadn't. I wish I had just been more, not rude or obnoxious but just more confident
0: two books in that case that you might enjoy one is called what you say when you talk to yourself by shad helmstetter and it's probably out of print or it is out of print it'll probably cost you anywhere between 100 and 150 dollars to get hold of it and it's how to run your own life by ute Meininger. Um, it's all about ta and it's a martian comes to earth and he explores just how crazy we are as a species. Uh, <laughs> I love it. So Thank you. Those two books would be great. Okay. Final question then. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment?
1: Right now, in this moment, I am struggling with the people, the organizations that are still not learning from this COVID pandemic and from well, from the COVID pandemic uh, specifically in the U.S. They're still thinking in the legacy mindset and and not using this crisis as a time to really make change. And I really mean that. The closed mindset has just not been jarred loose for some people. And this is the time for us to be thinking differently. How does data help us? How does technology help us? How do humans, how should humans interact differently? And I'm so frustrated that even that hasn't been enough to move some people in a forward thinking direction.
0: I think that COVID actually is the best opportunity we will ever have in our careers, because hopefully the next pandemic will be another 100 years down the road. And this is an opportunity to take a blank sheet of paper and look at our organization and say, okay, what am I going to do? It's the 1st of January, 2021. How do I want my organization to look? Who do I still want on my payroll? Um, How am I going to restructure my sales operation? my marketing my channel what am i going to do what can i what can i how can i use this uh, moment in time to reset completely and yeah. i see this as an absolute godsend i know that there's a lot of suffering and you know all of that but if you are in business and you are not taking full advantage of uh, covid in order to take a blank sheet of paper and really look at how you could restructure and what you can do away with and the yeah. waste in your organization, then you are crazy, yep. absolutely crazy.
1: Marcus, you know, we met with a, a customer in uh, in one of the large departments in the United States government just this week, and we were talking to them about how we can help them use leverage data that they're already gathering anyway, but use it to make informed decisions about how and when they should reopen their offices and how to keep people safe using data, not just making assumptions. And we gave this great presentation. And at the end, they said, well, we don't have an operational requirement for something like that right now. And I was thinking to myself, what do you mean? The health and safety of your workforce isn't a requirement? Now, I know literally what they mean. They mean no one is specifically asking for it in a document that's going to go into an acquisition cycle. They need to be thinking about how they can change the environment for better. And I couldn't believe it.
0: Are you okay if I take you to the woodshed for a little beating? (laughs) Sure. There are no bad prospects. There are only bad salespeople. (laughs) Um, The fact that it's bloody obvious that they should doesn't necessarily mean that they will. So if you had your time again and you were going through your preparation, what are the kind of questions that you would have asked in order to establish whether or not there was that motivation there and mm-hmm. whether they were connected emotionally to the outcome that you know is the right thing for them? You know, you can't help someone who doesn't want to be saved.
1: Right, exactly. Yes, in hindsight, I think what we should have done was thought, what are, what are all the common barriers that we get? From government customer. What are they likely to say if they don't want to hear what we have to say? And and one of them is this operational requirement. Where's the requirement that we should have foreseen that? And I think we, we didn't.
0: Have you built that question into your pre-call plan? Not yet. <laughs> Juliana, this has been an absolute joy. I have loved every minute of this conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Likewise, this was fantastic. I hope to work with you again, Marcus.
0: Me too. Tell me, how can people get hold of you?
1: I am on LinkedIn, uh, Juliana R. Vida. I think there's a whole lot of people with my name out there. I'm also on Twitter, same thing, Juliana R. Vida. And uh, please do reach out.
0: So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think that you or someone you know would be a great guest for the podcast, then please email me at mcauchi@sandler.com. at sandler.com. So this is Marcus Cowkey signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Happy selling. Stay safe. Bye-bye.